0: The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to John Accomphre, the British artist, about his show opening this week in New York. But first, football, or soccer to our US friends, is not always seen as a natural bedfellow with the visual arts, but in fact, there's a rich seam of art that relates to the beautiful game. Eddie Frankel, the art critic for Time Out London, has recently launched a magazine, Oof, which explores this rich territory. And now, with the World Cup in full swing, he's co curated an exhibition in London dedicated to contemporary works on this theme. Called Collective Failure, the exhibition is set in a mock-up of a British pub, with a free beer for visitors and live World Cup games on view alongside the works by various contemporary artists. I went to the gallery, Justin Hammond Projects, to talk to Eddie. Eddie, before we actually talk about the specifics of the exhibition, it seems to me that Connecting art and football has kind of become your life's work at the moment. Can you tell me about that and why you're doing it?
1: It really has taken over my entire life, uh, which is nice. You know, It's nice to have a passion that somehow ends up becoming something bigger than just a hobby. Uh, it, it started because I wanted to start a magazine about art and football, which is OOF. Um, and it was about two years ago that, that that idea came about. And it wasn't until about a year ago that I met Justin Hammond, who is my business partner and he was the one who pushed me to actually start making the magazine and there was you know there was just so much in the subject and I think people can be quite dismissive of football. People can think that football is sort of low culture. That it, the amount of snooty reactions you get when you tell people you you know you have to leave the gallery opening to go watch your team, uh, the amount of snooty reactions you get from people who think art is better than football, uh, is staggering. And I, I think it's an incredibly patronising uh, thing because football is global. It's for everyone. It's It's got a lot to it that should appeal to everyone. And I'm not saying everyone has to like football, but I think you should have a respect for football because it appeals to so many people. Um, And what's been such an amazing experience is digging through the various kinds of art that have dealt with football and seeing how much they pull out of it and how much they can use football to express incredible ideas. And I, I always say that I don't really care about uh, Lowry's painting of football because I don't think they actually tell you very much. I think they're quite straightforward. I'm much more interested in the classic example that is Philippe Perino's and Douglas Gordon's Zidane, a 21st century portrait, which uses one footballer during one game to express a huge amount of aesthetic ideas, a huge amount of idea, concept, like concepts about the way we interact, about how we make stars out of people, about how people move, about grace and fluidity. And that's just through football. And that that sort of idea happens throughout contemporary art when it comes to using football. And so I we, people say, oh, you do, you're doing a football magazine. I had There's one artist who refused to be in OOF Issue 2 because she said uh, she had no interest in being in a football magazine. And I was really, really bummed out about it uh, because this isn't a football magazine. This is an art magazine that uses football as a prism to, for looking at issues in society, at bigotry, at racism, at passion, at community, things that are just part of all art and part of all of our lives
0: constantly. I mean, that's the, that's the thing, is that that you're exploring is that football is a cultural phenomenon and in fact a lot of the works that are around us as we sit here in the gallery are not actually very football centric in the sense that we're not looking at lots of pictures of footballers for instance but we are looking at images which relate to all sorts of cultural phenomena. So tell me a bit about some of those.
1: Well so like I said I'm not particularly interested in classic depictions of football and in fact I don't think you can see a single football in any of the works here. And I I think that's sort of important to me in lots of ways uh, because I think football is about society and that's huge. And so the idea was that I want you to walk into this pub environment and feel quite intimidated by the works. And so the first work you see is by Guy Oliver and it's a massive banner that depicts Jackson Pollock painting and on it he's taken bits of Barnett Newman catalogues to write in Your Northern Slums, which is uh, a chant sung by southern football fans to northern football fans. And in the context of a stadium, that's quite uh, a sort of silly thing. No one cares too much. But when you take it out of that and you start actually thinking that people in the well-to-do south are mocking northerners for their poverty, that's an incredibly horrible, classist thing to do. And so by mixing it in with art, he's making us really think about, is it OK for us to be saying this horrible, horrible. Horrible stuff, and similarly for his other piece here, which is done on a supermarket curtain—one of the curtains that you get that divide the supermarket from the warehouse. Uh, He's spray-painted: "Are you Tottenham in disguise?" In a football context, that means: "Are you actually a are you you a terrible team?" Is what it means. But also, Tottenham's an incredibly poor bit of uh, London, and so we're saying: "Are you a poor bit of London?" You know, that's horrible. That's not a nice thing,
0: it's classism is what that is. And it's written in a graffiti style, which obviously then has all sorts of associations with that poverty or with, with with run down urban spaces.
1: Totally. And you have to and you know you have to walk through it and I really like that. I like that you have to push through this expression of of nastiness. You literally have to physically interact with someone's art and have this nasty thing that some some people say to other people. You have to you have to touch it and be part of it. It makes it a,
0: a bit more real. Tell me about why Oliver used abstract expressionism as a means of exploring football.
1: God, I don't know.
0: I I think he's sort of interested in... Oh, abstract expressionism is a particularly
1: manly, macho thing. Jackson Pollock is amongst the most macho artists you'll ever encounter. And so the picture that he's got in the background there is, you know, him, Jackson Pollock with a fag in his mouth, dripping some paint around. Uh, And also the Barnett Newman stuff. I, I, I don't even know if Kyle ever meant for this, but when all the Bonnet Newman images are put together, they sort of end up looking like football strips. Uh, so you, when you see the H in the middle of Northern, which is a bonnet, it's blue and white. It looks like Tonham Hotspur. And then you, you get AC Milan, you get Inter Milan, you get, you get Reading. It's, you know, so it's full of associations. And I think the macho-ness probably helps uh, undermine everything
0: a little bit as well. Now, one of the things that's been very prevalent in actually the coverage, the, the, the press coverage around England recently has been a whiff of racism in the tabloid coverage of one of the England players, Raheem Sterling, who uh, had a tattoo of a gun uh, done on his leg. And there were all sorts of... Institutionally racist ideas, which which appeared through those kind of reports in the tabloid newspapers, and that's something that's actually picked up in an artwork here in the show, isn't it? Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so there's a young English artist uh, who's uh, from Luton,
1: uh, lives up in Sheffield, it's called Ashley Holmes. He's a young black artist who's really interested in ideas of post-colonial theory and critical theory, and he's collected uh, all the Panini stickers of every black. Uh, football player that's ever played for england Uh, and he's blown so he's blown three up here and he's obscured them put them behind fences and sort of added uh, devil horns to them Uh, so the three footballers are sol campbell paul ince and raheem sterling who's in the news now and he's basically interested in the idea that we deify these footballers we we put them up on pedestals uh, to, with their their physical gods with unbelievable skills, and yet we still mock them. Sol Campbell is an, an amazing example of it because you, Ashley Holmes is also a Spurs fan, as Justin and I from UFA. But Sol Campbell, we call him Judas. We have a horrible as as a fan group, we have a horrible song about him. So this guy, he's been thrust into the into the public eye by his skill, and yet he gets called Judas. He gets vilified. And Paul Ince, he calls himself the Governor. Raheem Sterling is guilty in the press's eyes of buying his mum a nice sink. There was an article about him buying his mum a nice sink, like a, like a young guy with money can't do that. Was, There's was an article about him for taking a budget airline. So on the one hand, he spends too much money. On the other, he doesn't spend enough money. Then he gets a tattoo of a gun to represent lots of things that are personal to him. And yet he still is all over the papers. How many white players have that? Very few. And it's been a long time. And even when it was the white players, you look at the treatment of Wayne Rooney. That was classism. Uh, so it's, you know, it's very interesting how they get treated. Like they're, they're big, beautiful, bizarre works of art. I like them a lot.
0: I guess the most famous work in this exhibition is only very dimly related to football, but it seems to me taps into all of these associations that you're making now, and that's Fiorucci Made Me Hardcore, which is, I think, a sort of classic work. It's in both the Tate and the Guggenheim collections um, by Mark Leckie. And Mark Leckie made this film in the late 90s when he had been living in New York and had a kind of nostalgic view over British dance and uh, popular culture more widely. And it features images of casuals in 1980s Britain. And casuals are associated with a kind of terrace culture and partly, partly with sort of hooliganism in the UK. So tell me about why you wanted to include that work in this show.
1: I think he was sort of one of the first artists to really express these really gritty grotty, ugly sides and yet of of English society but also sides that you really desperately want to be a part of which i think is actually what football is it's gritty it's grotty it's got lots of nasty things but you want to be part of it you want to get swept up in it and so that work is playing on our quote unquote pub tv uh, and it gets turned off whenever we put the football on uh, which also fits in with the idea that you know when if you go to a pub and they've just got MTV on when they when uh, or whatever music channel when the football's not on so what actually i, I the thing i like about it is that it it Expresses the other side of English working class partying culture, and seeing the football casuals going out for a dance, going out raving, seeing the people going to Northern Soul nights. This is English working class leisure time uh, seen nostalgically. And it's not just in the Tate and the Guggenheim. It's also on YouTube, and it's free. So when we spoke to Mark Leckie, we said, can we show it? And he went, I don't care. It's on YouTube. Do whatever you want. Which is a really fantastic thing to have in the exhibition. We get to have this amazing artist with this free artwork that's just for the people. And it's about the people, and it's within this context. It's, like I said, gritty and grotty.
0: It makes you realise the that that film makes you realise how... um Sanitized modern football culture is in the sense that so many people experience football entirely through TV, through apps on their phone, uh, whereas the actual cut and thrust of actually going to the football match is still in many ways related to those experiences in the 70s and 80s. There's still a lot of, there's a big drinking culture around football, it is big. Groups of lots of men, for instance, still going out, going on minibuses all across the country and going to games. It is still a kind of community experience. And the modern presentation of football often denies that community. And it's it's still violent. As well, it's still violent
1: and aggressive. You know, you've been to lots of football games, I'm sure, and you've seen the beginnings of fights. You might have seen the whole middles of fights. I've been to see Spurs versus West Ham, Spurs versus Arsenal. I've I've been caught in the crossfire. You know, just trying to walk past that. You know, the modern game is sanitised, but that violence, that drinking, is still
0: there. It's still very apparent. Let's talk about this like, very, very sort of visceral piece, which is in the corner at the back of the show, which is this Henry Bragg piece. So, Julia
1: Henry and Debbie Bragg, uh, two artists who back in the 90s spent an entire year at Crystal Palace's ground, Selhurst Park. Uh, they took loads of photos. they were just trying to document fan culture, and one of the things they did was they put one camera on the home fans, another camera on the away fans, and filmed it filmed them for the, for an entire game. They created a video that was one and a half minutes during which a single goal gets scored, so Coventry score a goal against Crystal Palace. so what you watch as you stand in between these two sets of incredibly loud men is disappointment on one side heartbreak on that side and on the other side glory victory joy incredible things so you're stuck in the middle of the the most important emotion in football which is heartbreak which which could also at any moment turn into absolute joy and it's such a simple short piece it's very loud when we have it on in the gallery It's so direct and it's, you know, it really actually ruins the whole exhibition because all you hear is the cheering and the groans whilst you look at all the other eyes. Sort of swamps everything in it. But really, it's this you get to, you just pick out a character sit there and pick out a character for a minute and a half then change characters and you'll see so many emotions, so much aggression so much disappointment on people's faces, there's a little kid eating a pie the whole way through and he doesn't drop the pie even though his team scores, even though his dad's trying to get him to to throw a wanker sign at the other other fans and it's actually even though it is full of aggression and very male aggression and also I think uh, uniquely English aggression in the way they're mocking each other, which is very it's a hallmark of english football and there's also a huge amount of togetherness and community so i think despite the fact that the show is quite negative quite critical and at points quite surreal i we wanted to end on a note that was yes it can be aggressive yes it can be difficult yes it can be intimidating but football actually brings people together and makes you believe in something that group of people the crystal palace fans who are so crestfallen at conceding a goal also because they got relegated that year. So this was just another step towards misery. They're still united. They're still together. Then they're calling thousands of other people, wanker, together. You know, they're all throwing the middle fingers and the wanker signs. That's a group activity that unites them. And they can be heartbroken, but really they're together. And that's sort of the definition of community, isn't it? Doing stuff ensemble.
0: It's really interesting watching it because I was really conscious that there were in, in in a way in the most bizarre way it relates in some ways to something like a Bruegel painting in the sense there's all these mini incidents as you say for instance the the little boy eating the pie there's the guy with no teeth at the front who's sort of you know uh, grotesquely sort of caricatured um, but it's real life at the same time and I think that's a, that's another thing which really hits home uh, in a lot of this show is that it's about a kind of gritty reality as opposed to a kind of fantasy of what football might be.
1: Absolutely. I really care about football being used in art to represent reality. Nothing in here is about some highfalutin concept, really. Everything in here is about something that happens all the time in society in some way. It might be obsession. So in the work of Rob McNally, who does these incredibly intricate, very surreal pencil drawings, full of references that I will never understand. But that's about obsession and and the way you follow football or a game or anything you're completely in love with and you, and you find all these different ways to refer back to it in thousands and thousands of ways and everything, everything in your life relates back to football somehow or relates back to your passion. That's a very real thing. That's madness. That's obsession, compulsion. It might be the racism in Ashley Holmes's uh, work. It might be the displaced communities in Roddy Buchanan's very very strange photograph on the corner here it might be the communities that are that are united and yet divided in henry bragg's works it might be the classism in guy oliver's no matter what happens that stuff is really really real this isn't about questioning the space or identity this is entirely about especially the works here this is entirely about england and especially England right now, and how we're living in it. And that says a lot about the country and about Europe and about the wider world.
0: I suppose that, that you know, it brings home that there, for instance, at the European Championships in 2016, there were England fans standing in a square somewhere in France singing, um, fuck off Europe, we're all voting out. <laughs> so again... It's, it's, it's about this idea that football is much more than 11 men versus 11 men kicking a ball of air around. I think that's almost
1: the least important bit of football, essentially. I mean, you know, I'm saying this as, a, as someone who loves football and is also obsessed with it. It's the, what really happens is expressions of poverty, of bigotry, and hatred. And that's just life now. And that was always life. And there was a in the first issue of OOF, there's a really beautiful painting by Gerald Keynes called Saturday Taxpayers, which shows a bunch of people on a Saturday, grim, 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 grey English Saturday afternoon going to the football. You don't see the pitch, or you see almost on the pitch. You don't really see the stadium. You definitely don't see any football. What you see is people going and communing and, and going to their church through the misery of existence. And you know that's that's just life i really hope that people don't come to this or read oof and think this is about football or even think football is about football it's not football is about society art is about society football is just a tiny way of talking about
0: it eddie thank you so much thanks very much Collective Failure is at Justin Hammond Projects in Holloway, North London, until the 21st of July. Now, John O'Confora is one of Britain's leading art filmmakers. He came to prominence in the 1980s as part of the Black Audio Film Collective, which formed as a direct response to the 1981 riots in Brixton, South London. The collective created a number of hard-hitting but also often very poetic films, collaging found footage and still images, experimental sound, interviews and original material. Their best-known work is Handsworth Songs, a conference film made for British television about riots in Birmingham and London in 1985. compra has since gone on to make works in various formats, but it's his multi-screen video installations which have made him one of the most acclaimed artists working in Britain today. This week, his first American survey exhibition, Signs of Empire, opened at the New Museum in New York. And John joins me on the line from the museum now. John, the exhibition is called Signs of Empire, and that, that obviously relates to one of your very earliest works. Why did you decide to use that title for the show?
2: Uh, you know, as usual with, with shows like this, there's a certain am- amount of, uh, of input. That you have as an artist, but in the main, the curatorial, overarching curatorial judgments about what it should be called and what it needs to be uh, included in it, and so on, um, rest with with the curators and the new museum curators, Massimiliano and Gary, were very keen, I think, to um, uh, use. Signs of empire as a way of of um, alluding to the, the the different registers of empire, you know, um, that resonate with with the work. So you've got empires in the broad metaphoric sense, empires of the sea, of signs of political narrative and so on. Um, so if you ask me, that's what I think they were <laughs> trying to, to allude to. I, I, To be honest, I haven't asked them
0: <laughs> why but, they chose that. But, but nonetheless, that work, Expeditions One, Signs of Empire, is in the exhibition. Can you tell me about that show? Because it's a work that you made with Black Audio Film Collective back in 1983.
2: Yes, we started... I mean, in fact, one of the many reasons why... Uh, black audio came into being in the early 80s, 82 to be exact, was because the seven of us felt that some sort of uh, reconstruction work needed to be done uh, vis-a-vis black identities and images. You know, So one of the first things we embarked on was a sort of semiotic survey, if you will, of um, images of um, here and there. And, 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 one of the things we wanted to understand was the very construction of the here and there you know the signs of empire if you will the things which um, spoke uh, and evoked nativity the things which spoke and evoked uh, colors colonial peoples and by implication non-colonial peoples we were really trying very hard to 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 make sense of the history of representation Um, both of empire and of subjects inside the empire. Um, Now, I think one of the reasons why they have it here is that a a, a motif of Signs of Empire was a kind of investigation of what I would only now call colonial masculinity or imperial masculinity. You know, the, the kinds of masculinities... Formed out of having uh, quote unquote great men open continents and uh, take part in wars and you know where they encounter savages and, and, and destroy them and become you know all of that basically the the the, the formation of um, European male identity um, in the colonies, if you will, um, and that. That masculinity is one that I'm still interested in. I'm interested in the authorities that that masculinity invokes. You know, whether it's as a whaling captain in, in the form of Ahab or you know uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs. I'm interested in that kind of um, masculinity as excess, if that makes sense. It's the the idea that somehow um, there's legitimacy to this dementia of excess where you know people are forgiving the most appalling things you know you could be steve jobs and do the most appalling things to people but we understand it because a certain kind of manhood suggests that the way to get things is to be appalling <laughs> <laughs> is to be you know completely uncaring and unfeeling towards other people's uh, uh feelings so i'm interested in that and and i think that's one of the motifs that runs and connects most of the work in the show
0: the the centerpiece of the show is vertigo c which was a piece which was first made for the venice biennale in 2015 and it's a very ambitious three screen video installation can you tell me about that work and now that it's been installed several times how does it how is it evolving even in your experience of it
2: I mean every time I watch Vertigo C um in different locations something something strikes you that you hadn't you hadn't uh quite seen. Of course, you know, uh Venice was largely uh an art biennial. Um and so Vertigo C was was one of many cacophonous voices in a space saying, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know. Um since then uh, it's been, it's not done many biennials, but it's it's opened shows or um, played in museums, and there different sorts of people come. You know, um, I don't want to call make the distinction between normal and not normal people, but you know, in a biennial, you've got collectors, buyers, and you know, exhibitors and museum. Uh, curators and that's that's a sort of bulk of the people who i i encountered in venice um whereas you know for example in, in 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 new york now i'm i'm meeting office workers professionals in the main but you know people from very different walks of life and it's really interesting to to watch their reaction um to it now in the main it doesn't. The reactions don't seem to differ an awful lot. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm not finding the people who, um, the curators who watched it uh, in Venice, are saying, said, or are saying very different things to the um, teachers who are watching it in New York with me at the moment. You know. So that's a very kind of. It's a comforting thought to know that there's a core of what you were trying to do, which seems to come across to people regardless of, of um, occupation
0: or, or position. So what you mean is that there's a broad understanding of those big themes that you're exploring in the work. There's environmental themes, themes of migration, themes of displacement, those kind of, and you know, the, the, yeah. the, the wide-ranging imagery that you're exploring.
2: I mean, I think so. I think so. One way in which I I test myself to see whether um, uh, how people are responding to things differ from uh, location to location is if different questions come up. Um, And in the main, I've tended to to pretty much get the same sorts of questions. So people ask me about why the... uh, Five or six interlocking stories of deaths at sea, why that sits with this sort of visual history of um, Cetetian genocide, if you will. Um, the same questions seem to come up again and again and again, regardless of location. And um, it's kind of gratifying because it does mean that there's something uh, essentially uh, intact at the core of Vertigo C, and that's, that's pleasing.
0: Does it have any significance to you that the work is showing in New York at the the exact moment that there is a crisis in America where we are witnessing images of incredible cruelty at the Mexican border and... Migration obviously is right at the heart of that discussion, and simultaneously, we just had the Windrush scandal in the UK, where you see a dehumanisation of people who've been in the UK for generations. Is it of any significance to you that this work has that currency now? Can you see the work? Do you have? Are you forced to see the work through that prism? Do you try and bat it away? How how do you feel about that connection? Oh,
2: absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think in many ways. You make works like this precisely because you know that the backdrop to them is the scandal, uh, the Windrush scandal, or the separation of children from their parents in, in, in America, uh, as is going on at the moment. You know, um, One makes works like this because you wanted to talk to those conditions. You wanted to say to people things that tend to be forgotten. When these crises, quote unquote, uh, erupt. And one of them is to remind people that that there is a kind of utopian default to migration. No one leaves anywhere uh, with the hope that they might arrive in a new place, thinking they're going to be trouble, thinking there might be a burden, or thinking. People leave. Um, because they think they they're going to better themselves and by implication make a profoundly positive difference to the place that they're coming to um and one of the the really sad things uh, and it's the thing that connects the two uh conversations if you will the windrush one uh, that we went through you know a couple of months back now i think and um and what's going on in america is that it's precisely that utopian dimension that animates people who want to go anywhere new, that gets left out. It becomes this really depressing conversation about human beings as, as burdens and as trouble and as statistical anomalies, etc. cetera, et cetera. You know, um So one makes works like vertigacy because you wanted to participate in these conversations. Absolutely, yeah.
0: So tell me about um, Transfigured Night, which is a work which is very specifically focused on the US and its its connection with post colonial African history. And you've actually updated it for the new museum show. Is that right?
2: Yes, I mean not a huge amount. I did some work in trying to make it work um, sonically, just a little bit better. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do a huge amount. I haven't changed. Uh, the edit or pictures or anything like that at all. I mean, you know, the, um, uh, Transfigured Night was made um, for a show about five years, maybe more, I can't remember exactly how long now. And I was trying to um, uh, respond to a call then to do something on African liberation. One of the things that interests me about the post-colonial moment in Africa is is the sort of promise that uh, the post-colonial subject made to the post-colonial state and vice versa. You know, because these are states that are coming out of a certain um, period when they were, you know, uh, colonies, you know, uh, specks in an empire, etc., etc. So by the time independence comes, these are states that, that... there are multiple traces of of a past that's not exactly perfect, if you will. And one of the things that the colonial state, the post-colonial state, rather, says to the colonial, and by them post-colonial subject, is, I know I'm not perfect. I am going to try my best to do everything for you and, and appeal to, and make your life better, essentially. Um, and... Surprisingly, that is also the sort of story of Transfigured Night. It's the it's the Robert Derril poem, where um, uh, uh, two uh, lovers are walking at night, and and the woman says to 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 the male lover, you know, I'm uh, I have to confess a dark secret to you. I am carrying the child of another, another, and um, after moments of <laughs> Pausing and reflecting, uh, the male lover says, "Well, it doesn't matter. I, I promise you that together we will bring up this child, and we will uh, we will live happily ever after." In other words, you know, on this, in this moment, I make this pact of fidelity to you, in spite of your imperfections, and in a, in a kind of weird way, that is for me the allegory of of um, post-coloniality. And I wanted to make something which both alluded to that story, alluded to the Schoenberg piece, and said something about what became of the post-colonial state, the way in which it became a kind of narcoleptic entity. So it (laughs) it routinely fell asleep every time its subjects needed it in moments of emergency. Um... That that's the sort of setting of, of Transfigured Night, and um, uh, we used a lot of the Empire State, uh, sorry, the Lincoln Memorial, because it's well, it, it just carries so many of the promise of of um, liberation that I wanted to talk about. So America was both uh, a coincidence and and deliberate in the in the, um, the piece.
0: I wanted to ask lastly about actually the early days and specifically the fact that you said that you went to the Tate when you were sort of twelve because it was it was your local gallery as it were and and had a sort of profound experience, but also discovered uh European cinema at that time and I'm just interested in how those two kind of connections uh informed what happened next and was was, was, did you connect them immediately or did they come together only sort of almost sort of by osmosis
2: yeah (laughs) what an interesting question uh i but i think it's it's a question that uh tells you something about the time in which i received the calling from these two spaces you know um I mean, I was going to the Tate, not really thinking of myself as a potential artist. I, I was just interested in in painting, in particular, at the time, you know. Um, and started to go to to sneak into the cinema because I was bored, you know, like every thirteen-year-old <laughs> trying to find a new experience. And in both spaces, I'm there because. I want to be a consumer. Um, and it never entered my head that the two can somehow be fused in any way. It, it just seemed, they seemed alien worlds. But it also seemed alien worlds because I never thought that this was, um, these were avenues that I would be allowed to pursue, you know, uh, to to walk down or or, or to... You know, because I, I think already by then you were becoming aware as a young uh, person of color that there are certain prohibitions, let's say, certain prescriptions about what was possible and what was to remain impossible in your life. Um, and so I think I was then waking up to the possibility that, that there was a, uh, an, a, a, a prologue to be written, a first act to be, to be undertaken, which would involve clearing some space for that, the the involvement in either fields to be possible at all, you know. And it's only really much later, actually, um, that um, I started to be aware that there were these affinities, especially as I watched more and more uh, films. You started to see the ways in which, um, you know, Directors of photography or filmmakers were drawing from from the quote unquote art world, and it was only then that I started to think, okay, this is this is a possibility, and if it's a possibility, then one needed to look at it very, you know, concretely as something to be pursued, you know. Um, but that was in my twenties. I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't, I didn't think anything like that was possible beforehand. No.
0: John, thank you so much for talking to me.
2: No, it's a pleasure, sir. Take care, Ben, okay?
0: John O'Confra, Signs of Empire, continues until the 2nd of September at the New Museum in New York City. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter at The Art Newspaper. You can find our Instagram posts at TheArtNewspaper.official. Thanks for listening.